Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Det, Chang, and Lek are young university students living in Thailand during the 1970s. It is a turbulent time for the country's politics. Student-led protests in 1973 succeed in briefly overthrowing the country's military dictatorship. Det, Chang, and Lek, three students from very different backgrounds, navigate the country's changing politics from the streets of Bangkok to the jungles of northern Thailand. This is the premise behind A Good True Thai, the debut novel by Sunisa Manning, and a finalist for the Epigram Books Fiction Prize for Southeast Asian Writers. Sunisa was born and raised in Bangkok by Thai and American parents. She went to Brown University and now lives in California. Her work has appeared in Prairie Schooner, The Rumpus, and other places. Today, Sunisa and I discuss the historical setting of her book and how much her characters represent the dynamics and emotions of Thailand student activists. We will also discuss the process of writing historical fiction and some of the parallels one might draw with today's protests. So, Sunisa, perhaps it's best to start with the historical setting for the book. It's set in Thailand during the 1970s during one particular set of student-led protests. I was hoping you might explain some of the history for our listeners. Sure, and thanks for having me, Nicholas. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I'm happy to explain the setting. The book takes place between 1973 and 76, which was the last um, big student uprising. We're seeing that happen today again, um, but this was the last time that we really had a huge youth movement that enacted great political change in the kingdom. Uh, in 1973, students and Thai citizens joined together and they actually overthrew the dictator at the time, um, you know, which is a little bit similar to what's uh, on the table today. And um, with the overthrow of the dictator in 73, there was a new constitution written. It was a time of uh, less censorship. Thailand is a country that has many rules about what you can and cannot say. And so 73 to 76 is also known as a really artistic time. There are plays and songs and stories and just so much published and put out into the public realm. And that came to a close in 76 uh, with the massacre um, at Tamasat University on 6th October. That's something most Thai people know about. It's still pretty taboo. Uh, There's a lot of shame associated with it, but... It was a massacre of the students, and it really ended this period of openness, creativity, kind of political reform, democratic reform. Um, and and I think the it's it's not quite that the book is bookended by by two major historical events, but um, I guess you can kind of see Act One of the book is ending with the 1973 protests, and then it ends with the with with the, with the massacre in 1976. Um, I guess when it came to writing the book, uh, did you see those events as kind of bookends for the story or, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, 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 I guess, how did you, how did you see the history working with, with the narrative? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's one I wrestled with for a long time. You know, one of the influences on my book is Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel where everything large that happens historically is true and that she's she's um, creating narratives within, uh, in her case, a really well-known historical period. 
Of course, Hilary Mantel is working with Thomas Cromwell, who's a, you know, um, historic character. I made up my three main characters, but I did a similar thing where I pinned the narrative to everything big that happened historically. And then the big difference, of course, is that I'm working in the 1970s Thailand, and it's much less well-known outside of the country. Um, I spent a lot of time researching the book, but I also spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get the narrative to drive the book and how to get our readers' interest in debt, check, Chang and Lek, to kind of be the thing that we're following instead of following history. Um, what I wanted to investigate was why people would radicalize and particularly why someone of some privilege would radicalize. I think it's less of a leap, of course, for someone who's poor and smart, um, you know, to want more opportunity in a small country. Um, and while that's really important, I had read that in the 70s, some members of the nobility radicalized, which meant that they were working, in fact, to have a less uh, privileged life. I mean, to to make room for others. And in, in some ways, that seemed like a contradiction. And it seemed like a great contradiction for a fiction to investigate. Well, I think that's a, that's a pretty good segue in talking about the three main characters of A Good True Thai, um, Det, Chang, and Lek. Could you talk a little bit about each of these characters? Um, what makes them different in terms of their backgrounds? And what makes them different in terms of their approach to um, Thailand's politics? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, for me, it was really crucial to have the three characters because there's such a range between them. And I wanted the book to be an argument about opportunity in Thailand, but not to actually necessarily be an answer. And so let's begin with Chang. Uh, he's from Pongthe, which we would still probably call a slum, although that's not a really hugely PC word. Um, it's in the middle of Bangkok. You know, his mother works at a leather handbag factory. He's raised by his mother and aunt. Um, he's super smart. And you learn in the book that he's been sponsored by uh, actually American missionaries to go to different schools. Uh, but he's not a kid that's starting with a lot. And he knows where he wants to go and he wants to go to the best schools and he has a lot of fire and ambition. Um, I, I actually, I've talked about this a little bit. I based some of these characters off of War and Peace. And so Chang's character corresponds to Prince Andres, very idealistic, maybe a little bit too brittle and inflexible in terms of his idealism, but so uh, compelling too. Then we have Lek who corresponds to Natasha. She, um, is also poor and also very smart. Her parents come from China to Thailand, so she's a first-generation Thai immigrant family. Um, you know, that mimics actually my Thai side of the family. My Thai side's Thai Chinese. And so with Lek, for me, she's an entryway to discuss some of the racial aspects of being Thai Chinese, particularly then when there was more discrimination. And Lek is the same age that my mother was. My mother went to Jula, where Lek and Chango. Uh, as well at the same time. So um, some of my own kind of like family details are embedded in Lex's story. Uh, and then they're not because my mother didn't radicalize. And, you know, that's an obvious um, deviation from what I'm going to have Lex do. Um, she's also very beautiful. I'm really interested in women and beauty and power and particularly how that works in Thailand, um, where it's a currency. Women are very objectified, uh, both by Thai people and by foreigners. Uh, so Lek, you know, opens up that arena of discussion. Um, Det is the third character. He's sort of like the main main character. He's very sensitive. He's based on Pierre Bezukhov, 
um, in War and Peace, kind of sensitive, maybe like an anti-hero in the beginning, a little bumbling. He is a no- member of the nobility. He's descended from King Rama V, who's a really beloved king, um, through his mother. And the book opens with the death of Det's mother. And so with this loss, he's really destabilized and his connection to his royal lineage is called into question. He's someone who's looking for belonging again. And, you know, those are some of the forces that throw him into friendship with Chang and Lek. So from my reading, it seems to me that each character represents a, a different school of thought when it comes to political change. You know, revolution versus using the system, the power of ideas versus, you know, the power of hard work and so on. Um, but in reading the book, you know, no one, none of the three characters are right. You know, they all make mistakes. They all jump to conclusions. Um, they all, they all are frustrated with each other, but they all support each other. I guess I wanted to, to talk a bit more about, about how each character represents a different approach or a different attitude to, um, to questions of political change, to, to maybe revolutions, to, too strong a term, but I think not much given what some of the characters do in the book. Yeah, I think revolution works well, actually. It's an old fashioned word now, but it fits with the 70s. Yeah, I like that. Um, In terms of their ideas, you know, because debt is descended from within the elite and he's a part of the elite, of course, he thinks that he should be using the system and that change comes from within the system that governs Thailand. Thailand, you know, the founding mythology of Thailand is that it's made up of three pillars, nation, sangha, king. Sangha is the Buddhist sangha. Um, and for debt, that comes up again and again. It's really important. You know, he's hugely, um, he's a monarchist, of course. He's descended from a king. And um, debt's attitude is typified actually in the one of two um, epigraphs to the novel. It's by King Julalo Khan, who's the one he's descended from. And the quote, which is real, is, democracy in Thailand must be different than democracy in the West because Thais eat rice, not wheat. And so this is an argument for gradual change, for you know a, a form of democracy that's suited to Thailand. That's one strain of argument that goes through the whole book. Um, Chang and Lek come at it from a really different pole. That's the other epigraph to the book. And it's by Jake Pumisak, who becomes, he, he's an intellectual, Thai intellectual who was assassinated in the 1960s. And in my novel, and actually a little bit today too, He's kind of like um, a huge inspiration. I was even going to be like a spiritual deity, you know, for the progressive uh, pro-democracy movement. Jit's quote is, the Thai people of today are fully awake. They have been able to identify clearly the enemies who plunder them and skin them alive and suck the very marrow from their bones. And so between those two poles, that's the argument of the novel. And, and, I use that force actually to power a lot of the novel. Although I would say there are differences between what Chang believes and what Lek believes. And Lek as a writer is very aligned in terms of her work in the book is to try to uncover Jit's work, which was banned after he was, not even after he was assassinated, but in the sixties it was banned. Um, And this is true. Students work to find his work and publish it again in the seventies. They literally dug um, in dirt, like some of, Jit's work was buried in the backyards of faculty um, in the 1960s. So you had these students excavating uh, soil to try to find the writing. You know, Lek kind of leads that charge. Whereas Chow, he thinks 
that they should be doing something totally different. He's not as concerned with the lineage that they're building on, whether that's royal lineage or um, radical lineage. So actually, maybe this is a good chance to talk about to talk about Chit um, Pumisak, and apologies if I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly. Um, but he's one of the central figures of the book. Um, and I thought maybe you might go into a bit more detail about about his story. As you said, he's, he's, he's kind of a very, he's an inspirational figure for, for at least some of the characters. There's an interesting part of your story where um, I think, I, I think Lek is, is trying to explore uh, Chit's background and she's trying to talk to one of the, um, one of the, um, one of the gorillas in, in Northern Thailand um, about Chit. And, she keeps on talking about Chit's poetry, and then she discovers that, in fact, Chit wrote songs. And this is some big revelation to her. And it's a revelation that, that maybe, um, you know, things are, things, things are not quite as she had originally thought. So I just wanted to make, ask, could you go a bit more into, in, into Chit's story? And then also maybe how, what it was like to work this, this large historical figure into your, into your narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Jit Pumisak, he was born in the northeast of Thailand, right on the border with Cambodia. Um, so he spoke Khmer and Thai, and and it's important to identify as him as someone who didn't come from Bangkok. He's not from the center; he's from the margins. Very smart, you know, um, once in a generation kind of intellect. He ends up going to Jula, a Jula University, the best in the country, arguably. Kamasat would have something to say about that, but um, and. The story there is that he's actually radicalized by the Americans. So um, he was a really good student, particularly in linguistics. And his professor, William Gidney, I believe, um, I'd have to check his last name. Anyway, unbeknownst to the professor, who's an American, the American thought he'd been approached by the State Department to translate the Communist Manifesto into Thai. It was actually the CIA. Um, and the professor approached Jit Pumisak as a student to help him make sure he got all the Thai right. I mean, the apocryphal story is that that translation radicalized Jit Pumisak, and he went on to translate um, more work that continued to radicalize him. The CIA had thought that they would plant the Communist Manifesto on Thai radicals and be able to round them up and arrest them. This backfires when Jit um, radicalizes and he begins disseminating uh, that work. Um, Fast forward a little bit. So Jit was at college and he, I don't really want to give it away because it's my book, but he does something that gets him expelled from the university and beaten up by students in the engineering faculty. Um, He flees to the jungle and he dies there. And, you know, there's some kind of question around who killed him and why, but a large part of Lex's journey, particularly is in retracing Jit's steps and in also trying to uncover his work because there's not much available. For me, there's actually not much of Jit's work in English either, but I did find some translations. And I Jit wrote poems, and some of those poems were set to music, and that's how they were disseminated so effectively. And so I was making a point in a way about kind of elitism and um, education when Lek assumes that the poems stay poems and... Uh, and, you know, she has a lot to learn when she's out in the jungle from Dao, the character who tells her that, in fact, some of them are songs. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of Lex's journey of stepping outside of what she understands, which is very urban, very intellectual, 
uh, and starting to see the way the rest of Thailand works. Um, could you get into some of the urban and rural differences um, that that you explore in in the book? I mean, I know I know Thailand is is very dominated by by Bangkok. A lot of our discussions about Thailand dominated by Bangkok. It's Thailand's largest city by far, but it's also not you know it's it's not a huge part of the population. So I wanted if I, I was going to ask for you to kind of maybe talk about that difference between urban Thailand or really just Bangkok and the rest of Thailand. Yeah. I mean, it's something that can be hard for people to understand. Um, you know, I'm in the U S right now and it's sort of like, imagine New York was the only real metropolis. Of course we have lots of other cities in Thailand, but Bangkok is the biggest city by such a scale and population. Um, I think, it's a complicated question, but that people who aren't from Bangkok often feel like uh, power, you know, our parliament is set in Bangkok, it's the capital city, and that people don't understand what hap- what it's like outside of it. That was certainly true in this period in the 70s, where you had these very idealistic college students from Bangkok um, move into the countryside, and they were on um, there to educate farmers. And so they come in and they're like, this is democracy. But these are kids that probably wouldn't recognize rice in the field, you know. So I think part of the comedy and part of the uh, hubris of this movement is that they're here talking about kind of abstract ideals in the countryside when people are really just like, here's the rice. I need to get it to the mill. I want a good price at the market. I'd like to buy a motorcycle. Like it's very practical and grounded, actually. And I think that's one of the things that the students get to learn. If I could just read a quote from my book about that, um, it's quoting debt. And he says, living here, here is in the countryside. I understand that everyone wants a better life in whatever way they measure it, a motorcycle so they can get to market, a fair, fair deal when they sell their rice. If people in the city could see what it's like out here, they might understand that we can't hold on to our comforts. They aren't ours alone. People want a better life and someday they will come for it. I remember that quote too, and and, that, and that's a great part of of Det's character development throughout the novel. I, I'd actually like to maybe end our our discussion of the book before going on to other questions about writing process and things like that um, by talking about by talking about Det. Um, so the royal family, um, how they are treated, how they are seen, is one of the book's central elements. You know, Det's royal associations are a major part of his character. And how he deals with it is one of the driving forces of a good true tie. How did you decide to approach the subject of the royal family uh, in the novel? Um, I really sweated over it. I struggled with it. I, you know, I'm not from a Thai family. I mean, first of all, we're ethnically Chinese, so my whole Thai side is so far from the royal family and the nobility, but I did encounter it. Um, I worked for a royal foundation for two and a half years uh, under the patronage of King Rama the Ninth's mother. And um, in college, I met Thai students who are members of the nobility. So through these connections, I started to see a little bit about how the nobility live. Although, you know, so that's kind of where I got some of that from. But I knew that I needed to have a character like Det who was immensely privileged because it made the book so much more complex and that any 
investigation of Thailand, any look at how Thailand works is missing. If you're missing the elite, it's a small country with a lot of money and power concentrated at the top. Thailand's monarch is the wealthiest in the world. You know, these are things that right now I'm stating facts, but um, they're extremely sensitive to talk about right now. Um, but that was true before as well. And and for me writing the book, I I had to think very carefully about everything I put down on paper, but I thought it was very important to do. Mm-hmm. Um speaking of speaking of thinking carefully about what to what to put down on paper i think this is a good time now to talk about the process of writing the book and, and the process of writing historical fiction um I, I asked this question briefly at the beginning of this episode um but maybe i'd like you to talk a bit more about about actually how you try to to integrate the narrative with the history um i mean is it a question of fitting the the history into the narrative or the narrative into the history, you know, I guess kind of kind of what comes first. And and I'd like to note as well that at the end of the book, you you point out all the places where you where you uh, diverge from the historical narrative, where you've maybe um, engaged in some artistic license, um, but you actually cite all the places where you've done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tried to. So I'm and I'm sure I missed some, but I tried to cite the big places where I diverge from history because. Since I wrote the book in English, it's the only language I could write the book in, I knew that for a lot of readers, what they read, they would take to be historically true. And so I wanted to be really clear about the moments when it wasn't, because largely the book is, I think, historically accurate to the best of my ability. I did a lot of research to write this book. Um, The research uh, changed my ideas of what it is to be Thai as well. And that's the question of the book. It's why it's called A Good True Thai. All the characters are arguing about what makes you a Thai person, what makes you a citizen, what makes you, um, what makes the country, what is it made up of? And, um, oh goodness, so many things to say here. Yeah, but how did I fit narrative? The, the history did come first. I, um, but I wanted us to care about the history, which is where the narrative came in. Because I'm writing in English, there are a couple times where I know that a Thai person would read something more symbolically and they could read into it, but I wasn't sure that an English reader would. And so I would try to enact instead of just staying with a symbol. Because there's so much you can't say in Thailand, I think one of our strengths is that people read into the metaphors very well, right? When you have protesters, this is in 2020, dressing as Harry Potter, they're pointing at Voldemort and they're and what is Voldemort, Voldemort called? He's called he who must not be named. Who are they talking about? They're talking about the Thai king, Rama the tenth. You know, so there are a lot of levels to these symbols. And so since I wrote in English, I tried to not always to make what's usually implicit more explicit. Um, one big example of that is in the 1973 protest where the students, some of the students under gunfire ran towards Jivada Palace and they they jumped over the walls. And they were given shelter within the grounds of the palace where the king and queen resided. To any Thai person, you know, they're like, oh, wow, the monarch supports the student movement. I wasn't quite sure if that was enough. So the big artistic license was that I had the king and queen come out and give food and drink to the students. In real life, historically, palace staff did. But you knew that if palace staff did, you know, the king had um, approved that. And so um, I do, particularly around the monarchy, try to make clear where the monarch's 
allegiance was for different events in the novel because that says so much about the outcome of different events. Um, you said that you just said that your research process um, changed your thinking about about a number of things. Um, would you mind going into kind of one of the areas where where your research for the book changed your thinking? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the areas. I'm just looking at the end. So at the end of the book, I actually cite the main texts I use. Um, there are a couple of things missing that I didn't feel like I could put down in this list, but the big texts are here. I'm trying to think of a thing I can mention that's politically kind of neutral, which is challenging. Um, I guess I, so I was born and raised in Bangkok, educated only in English. I went to an international school, uh, but, and, you know, my Thai family, we were fully culturally steeped in all of the Thai things. We're Buddhist and Thai Buddhist, you know, we went to the temple a lot. Like we um, revered King Rama the Ninth. Uh, and part of the reason I wrote this book was because I felt like for how smart and, um, talented my Thai family are, we really had trouble making inroads socially and um, kind of getting good jobs, good paying jobs, you know, progressing in them, you know, getting a stable life, all of the things that people want. Um, we, this is my family personally, at some point made it into the middle class and then we dropped out of the middle class after 1997 and um, the Tom Yam economic crisis. And so that was my personal story. I guess one thing, this isn't a change, but when I, when I started to really look into uh, Thailand, and I'm thinking right now of Chris Baker and Paso Pompejit's book, The History of Thailand, there's a chapter where they talk about the families in power in Thailand. They list about eight. And I think this is referencing the 60s and the 70s. It is amazing to me how many last names I knew, they were classmates of mine, either at international school or at Brown. And, and when I thought, oh, wow, you know, that's eight, that's eight families. I know them all in the super elite. No wonder my family, my Thai family had trouble kind of finding a foothold in the kingdom. I'd say like, that's an example for me of, of scholarship, crystallizing and sharpening some of my um, instincts around what it's like in terms of opportunity for people who don't have connections in Thailand. I was thinking we might end this interview with some of your thoughts about what's happening in Thailand right now. Um, you know, unlike previous protests, this most recent protest appears to be far less uh, deferential to the royal family. Um, you noted in your recent piece for Nikkei I think you used the phrase, um, you know, young Thais have lost their religion. Um, would it be right to consider this a, a radical shift from previous protests? Has this been something that's been developing over years, if not decades? Um, so I was wondering if you might, if you might share, share a few thoughts about what's happening in Thailand right now, and also how perhaps writing the book might have... Um, might lead you to see what's going on right now in a certain way. Yeah. The answer to your question is both, you know, um, 
in the 70s, you know, obviously the communists were anti-monarchists. Um, it, in 2010, the red shirts uh, talked about the, the monarchy. So it's not that this is the first time the role of the monarchy has been questioned in protests, certainly. And yet how directly they're doing it and how loudly they're doing it are kind of new. Um, and they broke a taboo. And I think that what I'm interested in is that once that has been shattered, it's very hard to go back, you know, um, this, the, the pro-democracy movement right now talks about the Crown Property Bureau, which is under the control of the king. It's what makes him the wealthiest monarch in the world. They, they talk about how much land he owns. Um, they talk about the statecraft that he conducts from German soil. It, all these things in such blunt terms, this is unprecedented. Um, and it's easy to overlook in English <laughs> where, you know, you may be coming from um, a place where you have freedom of speech. And that's not true in Thailand. And we've already seen several student leaders be charged with Les Majest, which is Article 112 or 1110, 110, sorry, um, for violence against the Queen. I've been really impressed with the current movement. It's nimble and um, very much like the movement for Black Lives in the States, which learned from the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in the 1960s. You know, if it's fairly leaderless, what that means is that the movement can continue even if people who've been standing at the podium are jailed and it makes it a more resilient movement. Um, Thailand's movement right now is very inclusive. You see queer youth talking, you see transgender people um, on a catwalk, parroting a catwalk, a fashion show that was happening in a ballroom on the same day. Um, I think, I think the Thai government, which is the military and the monarchy, you know, could, could listen to what's happening because the future of the country is really standing up for change. So I think with that, um, that's a good place to, to end our conversation about a good true tie. Sunisa, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask two final questions and you know, these are, these are your standard two questions to end any, um, any author interview. The first is where can people find your work? And the second is, what are you working on next? Oh, yeah. Where can they find my book? Um, it depends where you are in the world, actually. Uh, but the easiest way is to probably go to my website, sunisamanning.com, and I have a list of all the places. Um, it includes Kindle, so you could reliably do that. And we just sold the audio rights, and I'm hoping to read the book. So that should be coming soon. Uh, what am I working on next? you know, I'm a teacher and I'm in term time and I have a toddler. So <laughs> the next in a pandemic, the next is uh, a little aspirational, but winter break is around the corner. Um, I'm working on a book I, that is not historic. <laughs> I wanted to work on a book that I don't have to research as much. And that's only one point of view. Um, I just needed a break. I actually like the research very much, but I it's part of what took me so long with the book. And so I'm working on something that's contemporary, that's moving further into a direction of like looking at women and Thai women, foreign men, you know, that interface around that cliche um, that also has some truth to it. Uh, and it's, it's about what looks like a really glamorous family and um, some of what's really going on for the family. So a really different book. It's very inspired by Elena Ferrante, her early work that 
that's sort of intense and uh, short. So that's what I've been working on. Well, I look forward to, to learning more. Um, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Sunisa, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.